I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa D. Simone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the income tax consequences of athletes receiving compensation for use of their name, image, and likeness. On June 30th, 2021, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors approved an interim policy that allows student athletes to be compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. In today's episode, we unpack the tax consequences of this policy to student athletes and discuss how athletic supporters have tried to obtain favorable tax outcomes from their NIL activities. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. We are back at it with another episode at the Center of Sports and Taxes. Love it. Today, we're going to be talking about the concept of name, image, and likeness, or NIL, which has garnered a lot of interest in recent years. And this intersection of sports and taxes raises some interesting and maybe unexpected challenges for the players involved. So I think we should dive right in. Um, Was that a pun? Dive right in? Uh, I think it was an idiom, but either way, challenge accepted to incorporate as many sports idioms, puns, and references as possible in today's episode. Uh, Sounds like a plan. So tell me, what's today's lineup? Well done. First up, we'll talk about what NIL is broadly and the history of its controversy in collegiate athletics. Next, we're going to highlight the tax consequences of NIL collectives, which are groups of boosters and other athletic supporters giving it their best shot to generate tax benefits from funding NIL activities. All right. To kick off the discussion, we have to talk about Ed O'Bannon or my husband would never forgive me. And we don't want you to end up in divorce court. No. So O'Bannon played basketball for UCLA and was a starter on their 1995 national championship team. He went on to file a lawsuit against the NCAA and others for actions that deprived him of his right of publicity. And that's important because the right to publicity, also known as personality rights, is the right for an individual to control the commercial use of their identity. This includes things like your name, image, likeness, and other, quote, unequivocal identifiers like nickname, voice, signature, etc. And celebrities have a really long history of lawsuits in this area. They do. And we had some fun looking up some some pretty interesting ones. Uh, So one is Don Henley. Love him. The Eagles Hotel California. He sued Dillard's department stores for advertising a Henley shirt with the words, quote, this is Don. I think that's fair. Agreed. Uh, Another, this could even be better, is Johnny Carson suing a company called Here's Johnny's Portable Toilets. (laughs) Okay, he had every right to sue in that case. Um, Bette Midler sued Ford for using one of her backup vocalists um, who had a voice very similar to Midler's and they used them in their car ads. And the court ruled that there was value to Midler's distinctive voice. She had the right to protect it from use without her permission. So this doesn't mean that people have to be compensated for the use of their NI. Um, just that the ultimate decision of who uses those things, when, how, and for how much money, that's up for the individual to decide. So back to O'Bannon. EA Sports released a video game titled NCAA Basketball 09. The game featured an unnamed UCLA player. Sneaky. Who just happened to play the same position as O'Bannon. What a coincidence. Have the same height as O'Bannon. Hmm. Same weight, same skin tone. Same bald head, same jersey number. Oh, wow. Same left-handed shot. Okay. EA Sports did this without O'Bannon's permission, and they did not compensate him for using his, we're going to call it image and likeness, for commercial purposes, which was to sell video games. 
Right. So you might ask why O'Bannon and others sued the NCAA if it was, in fact, EA Sports that was profiting from the game sales. But at the time, the NCAA had rules that restricted the compensation college athletes could receive for their image and likeness beyond the value of their athletic scholarships. After the O'Bannon case, other class action lawsuits were filed against the NCAA. And eventually, in July of 2021, the association announced new interim rules that removed these restrictions on college athletes entering paid endorsement deals. Athletes can now be compensated for their NIL in ways that are consistent with state laws. And with compensation comes taxes. Ding, ding, ding. So let's start with the good news. Athletes who earn less than the standard deduction, which is $13,850 in 2023, are off the hook. They should have no federal tax liability and shouldn't even need to file a tax return. That's good news. Yeah. Now, the less good news Student athletes earning money from NIL are considered to be self-employed. They're not earning money in their capacity as employees of the colleges and universities that they play for. And as we've talked about in prior episodes, these self-employed individuals, they face a, a more complex, a more complicated tax environment. 100%. Uh, being self-employed means that these college athletes and really any taxpayer mm-hmm. has to file an additional form with their tax returns called a Schedule C. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're going to report all of the income they earn through NIL activities. And they have to report all of that income, whether they received cash awards, sponsorship income, royalty income, whatever it is they got for the use of their NIL, be that in video games, et cetera. Not only do they have to report any cash they receive, they'd also have to report the value of non-cash property. Mm. So anything that they get for other people exploiting their NIL, they're going to have to report as income. Okay. Now, fortunately, self-employed taxpayers can also deduct, quote, ordinary and necessary business expenses to offset this income. Okay, good. For these college athletes, it could include things like driving mileage to and from these NIL income locations, legal accounting and management fees, and other purchases directly related let me say that again, directly related to the generation of this NIL income. Okay, so they can offset their income with deductions. Yes. Great. Trick here is that athletes and all taxpayers have to keep detailed documentation to support those deductions. Athletes can also offset their income tax liability by claiming federal tax credits for higher education expenses related to tuition, fees, and course materials. And if the athlete is on full scholarship, they may not have any of these credit eligible expenses. Exactly. All right. So that's on the income tax side of things. You got to keep track of your income, your deductions, and maybe some credits. The real trick here is that self-employed college athletes will also have employment tax obligations on their net income from NIL activities. Ah. Every individual's salary or self-employment income is subject to a 12.4% tax to fund Social Security mm-hmm. and another 2.9% tax to fund Medicare. If you're super high wealth, there's another even little bit of tax that gets thrown yes. in there. When you are employed, good news is you get to split this obligation 50-50 with your employer and they take care of all the paperwork for you. That is nice. But when you're self-employed, you're on the hook for the entire amount and you got to do the paperwork yourself. Damn. Example? No sweat. So let's talk about former Alabama quarterback and Heisman winner Bryce Young. By some estimates, Young earned between $800,000 and $1 million in 2022 from NIL activities. So to keep things simple, let's assume he earned a flat $1 million net of expenses. What does he do? He reports the million of income from self-employment on his tax return. As a single taxpayer, he would have owed 
keeping it simple here, let's call it roughly $320,000 of income taxes. He also would have owed about $45,000 of self-employment taxes. So all in, that's $365,000 total in taxes between income and self-employment taxes for a tax rate of almost 37% on his income. That's a lot. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. And it's ignoring any state or local income taxes that he would have to pay. Another complication is that the IRS has what we call a, quote, pay-as-you-go system. Is it voluntary? I was going to say it, but I let it go. When you're an employee, your employer withholds income and employment taxes from each paycheck and sends it to the government on your behalf. So even though you might not realize it, you are paying your taxes throughout the year. Yes. You don't get to wait to pay the full amount when you file your return on April 15th. Yes. So self-employed individuals have to remit those payments as well throughout the year. These are called estimated tax payments and they pay them each quarter. If they don't, you likely would have to end up paying a penalty for being so late paying your taxes and you pay that penalty when you file your tax return. Exactly. And that could be a surprise if you weren't expecting it. It could be. Student athletes must also report income earned through NIL activities on their free application for federal student aid, the good old FAFSA, for those of you who filled it out back in the day. And more income could mean less need-based aid. The interaction could impact several student athletes because by some estimates, about 50% of students on athletic scholarships receive need-based aid and approximately 33% of those receive federal Pell Grants. Bottom line is that new NIL rules provide potentially lucrative opportunities for student athletes to capitalize on their popularity and talent off the field. But they also add increased complexities that could blindside young individuals who may have never even filed a tax return or managed their own finances in their life. 100%. Now, the NCAA authorizes schools to educate their student athletes about NIL activities, but the types of services that schools can provide related to legal and financial matters is limited. So for example, schools cannot provide services like tax prep or legal contract review unless they provide those services across the board to all of their students. When it comes to tax compliance, the ball is essentially in the student's courts. Schools are left to tell student athletes that their NIL income is taxable and advising them to either learn the ropes themselves or seek the assistance of a tax professional. Gosh, and I hope if they wind up with a tax professional that they get somebody who, you know, is good and is not going to try to fleece them. Because I can't imagine anybody wanting to take advantage of a young student athlete earning lots of NIL income. Right. Right. Or they could just come take a class like my personal finance and tax class. Yes, that's a great point. NCAA's interim rules paved the way for student athletes to be compensated for their NIL, but colleges and universities themselves can't directly pay players. So that raises the question of where this money to pay for student athletes NIL will come from. And the answer is the classic age old answer, which is boosters, fans and businesses. That is the answer to every question. Boosters, fans and businesses. Since the new rule was adopted, many NIL collectives have cropped up. These entities are created by boosters, fans, and businesses to develop, fund, and facilitate NIL deals for student athletes at the colleges and universities that these boosters support. 
Donors essentially pool money into these collectives, and that money is distributed to the student athletes for their NIL activities. Okay, so although these NIL collectives are generally independent of the university where the student plays, in some states, the school's foundation actually partners with or even owns the NIL collective. So, for example, at Texas A&M, donors can earn priority points for making donations to NIL collectives that are eventually paid to athletes of the school. In Arkansas, athletes have been paid for charity appearances through an organization that is owned by the school's foundation. Now, all of this sounds to me yes. like a clever way to circumvent the prohibition against schools directly paying athletes to play. Yes. But what does it have to do with taxes? Excellent question. So I know this is the first, and I'm going to say it's the last time, I'm going to assume this is going to be the last time on this episode that we went to Sports Illustrated <laughs> uh, as a source for some of the material we're discussing Love today. Love that. Love that. So uh, according to reporting by Sports Illustrated, there are more than 200 of these NIL collectives that exist. And although the vast majority of them are organized as for-profit entities, so what we might think of as a business, mm -hmm. dozens have been granted 501c3 PO. status as tax-exempt entities by the IRS. And that status allows these collectives to receive millions of dollars in donations tax-free and allows the boosters, fans, and businesses making those donations to claim a tax deduction. This is like win-win-win because... Uh, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it eliminated personal deductions for amounts paid to a college or university booster club in exchange for the right to purchase tickets to sporting events. And they found a way to get that deduction back by contributing to a 501c3. I mean, this is getting an A plus for clever. Yes. Now, if you listened to our episode on 501c3 PO. organizations, you may be asking yourself how an NIL collective that basically has the sole purpose of funneling money from individuals to student athletes mm -hmm. could possibly ever be considered a tax-exempt organization. Yep. After all, as Jason Belger, a manager of several for-profit collectives says, setting up a collective as a 501c3 is disingenuous. It's a way to get a tax write-off for paying student athletes. It sure sounds that way. Yeah. And if you listen to our episode on the charity scandal, you might remember that approving 501c3 organizations has been an area where the IRS has been a little... Um, asleep at the wheel. It's a nice way of saying it. Plus, this NIL business as it relates to student athletes is totally uncharted territory. So, you know, everybody's figuring this out right now. Obviously, no individual would try to seek a tax deduction for directly paying a professional athlete. But the guidance on the payment of student athletes is more complicated because education and fostering am amateur sports competition they actually are both exempt purposes laid out in section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. And also a lot of the money that these student athletes receive is for doing charitable appearances. Mm, excellent point. So this is all really complicated. It is. And as a result, in June 2023, the IRS Office of Chief Counsel released a memo on whether an NIL collective furthers an exempt purpose under section 501c3. Okay. The memo explains that many of the paid NIL opportunities for student athletes involve promoting the collective itself or a partner charity, like we just talked about, yep. by appearing either in social media posts, attending a fundraising event, or maybe signing memorabilia that the charity can then sell for profit. Okay. The collective posts opportunities online and student athletes can choose which opportunities they want to accept. 
Some collectives also assist student athletes with NIL activity reporting as required under state or university rules. And others assist athletes with developing their brand, financial planning, tax compliance, legal advice, other things that these, frankly, vulnerable student athletes really need. I think that's the right adjective for sure. All right, so we've laid out what these collectives do. Now let's talk about whether they deserve to be qualified as tax exempt under 501c3. That is the question. So to be a nonprofit under 501c3, an entity must be organized and operated exclusively for an exempt purpose. The entity must also serve the public rather than private interests. Now, an entity can get away with serving both public and private interests as long as any private benefit is, quote, clearly incidental to the overriding public interest from both a qualitative and a quantitative perspective. I just said a lot of words. Can you help us out here? That was a lot of words. All right. Let's start with the qualitatively incidental piece. To be qualitatively incidental, any private benefit must be a byproduct of the exempt activity or necessary for the exempt purpose. So let's look at an example. The IRS once ruled that an entity formed to preserve a lake as a public recreational facility could be tax exempt, even though some private individuals who owned property on the lake received benefits from that lake being used as a public recreational facility. Okay, so that makes sense. It, the point isn't that no private individual can benefit. Right. It's just that their benefit has to be incidental to yes. what the public is getting. Okay. That's that, fair, right? Makes sense. Totally. All right. So to be quantitatively incidental, the private benefit must be, quote, insubstantial compared to the public benefit. Okay. Now, another example, the IRS once denied tax-exempt status to an entity that was formed by art patrons to promote modern art. And the way they were going to do this was by selling the work of local artists. Those local artists got to keep over 90% of the sales proceeds ah. and 90% clearly not quantitatively incidental. New. And honestly, that sounds an awful lot like what these NIL collectives are doing. Agreed. I mean, they may claim to be furthering the public interest in sports or academics, but they're doing so by funneling money directly to student athletes who are private individuals benefiting from this activity. Yeah, and when you think back to a situation where the student is, let's say, going to United Way benefit or something like mm -hmm. that, they're getting paid and that is the whole reason why they're getting paid. They're not, yes. it's not a byproduct. It's not right? incidental. Exactly. Yeah. So good for us, the IRS agreed okay. with, with our thinking and concluded that the benefit to private interest from NIL collectives, the benefit to student athletes essentially, is likely to be more than incidental. Yes. These benefits are not just a byproduct of exempt activities. They are the primary part of the NIL collective's activities. Exactly. The whole point of the collective is to facilitate deals for players. And that, my friends, is not an exempt purpose. So as a result of the memo, NIL collectives that are 501c3 organizations should stop promoting their donations as being tax deductible. Please. At least one college athletic director fears the IRS might apply this reasoning laid out in the memo and use it to tax donations previously received by the collectives and charge them with penalties, which frankly seems like it might happen. Yeah, I kind of agree. I don't think it'd be, I think it'd be kind of hard to claim ignorance here or yeah. to make like a substantial case that you thought this was okay. 
Yeah. And I think this is different than what we talked about in the charity scandal episode. Like if you, you know, went, you were looking to contribute money and you contributed money to the American Cancer Society of Michigan based in Long Island, and then subsequently find out that that's a fraudulent charity, I don't think you should get your donation disallowed. Mm. But I have no sympathy for the donors in these instances of these NIL collectives because they were probably very actively involved in setting it up and pushing for that 501c3 status. That's a great point. So it sure does seem like anyone with nonprofit experience should have known better. As one athletic director noted when responding to the question of why their school didn't go with the 501c3 model, that person said, uh, what charity are you donating to? you're not you're lining kids pockets to keep them at your school that's not a charity that's a way to get around tax laws which leads to tax evasion taxes are everywhere taxes are everywhere Time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I will start off with a good by saying, I think at the core, the rule change is intended to benefit these students. I totally agree. I mean, these are all adult human beings and it was always kind of weird why they yeah. would have different rights when it came to their NIL yeah. than somebody else would. And I don't know what the statistic is, but it's only a minority of student athletes that go on to play professional yes. sports. So to your point, this is an opportunity for them to sort of get theirs. Yes. And it's never felt right to me that like these football coaches and basketball coaches make millions of dollars a year and mm. we're not given anything to the students. Yeah. Um, I think another good thing here, if I can, if I may. Please. The rules were put in place in June of 2021. Yes. We're sitting here in 2023, which is two years later. And yeah. I know that feels like a really long time. But in government, like what do yeah. they say, a year to a person's like seven years to a dog. Yeah. I don't know how to do the math, but in government years, that's not really that long. This is like lightning fast to get a, a ruling, yes. a, a, some guidance, yes. a memo with guidance. So you knew yeah. where I was going immediately. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm kind of impressed that the IRS Super impressed. got on it after quotey pause only two years. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to the bad. The fact that the IRS had to write a memo about this, not so great, right? Clearly a complicated area. And you've got a bunch of students who are young adults. They're off on their own for the first time, many of them. Um, they're managing their own finances for the first time. And now all of a sudden you're going to add a whole bunch of money into yeah. that. There's a budgeting and personal finance yep. issue, right? Saving for the future, which is maybe not the strong suit of young people. And then you add on to that this tax issue. Yep. And they have to navigate a fairly complicated set of tax rules around being self-employed. That's a lot to put on a young adult. It totally is. And I think it's a little disappointing that they're not getting more guidance, right? Yeah. The NCAA is sort of tying schools' hands. And I get it to some extent. Like, I get that you maybe don't want the school to be in the business of giving legal or financial advice to yeah. students. Like, I get that. But there are some bad players who yeah, are for sure. trying to do some bad stuff. And I don't think students are immune from that. Mm -mm. The other thing that I'm going to say here is it's really obvious who's getting these deals, right? Yeah. It was very easy for us to find a list of these big NIL deals. So in theory, it'd be really easy for the IRS to say, hey, that kid just got a million bucks. I wonder if they're doing everything properly. Let me go double check their tax return. And for the record, this is a high income taxpayer, yes. which should be yep. the type of taxpayer targeted. I'm not saying that feels great because right. the young adult yep. is probably not intentionally doing anything wrong. But going back to all this enforcement discussion that we've had in other episodes, like that is actually 
the right way for the IRS to spend its resources to make sure that these young adults are being compliant and paying their fair share. ESPN did a really good episode of 30 for 30 on what happens to NFL athletes. Mm. When they sign that first deal, they actually go through financial training, but it talked about some really sad stories of these professional athletes. So if there are many documented cases of 23, 24, 25 year old adults making bad decisions when it comes to finances, Uh, I think it's safe to say that we could see similarly bad or even worse decisions among 18, 19 year olds. Okay, so on to the ugly. I think clearly it's this group of NIL collectives who were trying to claim tax exempt status. Mm -hmm. Again, I've said this before, Jesse Boyles, pigs get to eat, hogs get slaughtered, right? Mm. You finally got the ruling that you wanted, which is that you can pay student athletes for NIL. And now you you decide to figure out a way to get a bunch of tax benefits on top of that. Yes, like you weren't, it wasn't good enough to just pay the students who are at your school, get the best athletes so that you get to watch your team win and you Mm -hmm. get to have some control over, you've kind of turned this into a free market more so than it was Mm -hmm. before, but that Mm -hmm. wasn't good enough. You had to go and try to deduct it on your tax return. Which, by the way, the people who are able to claim a deduction on their tax return are also very high, relatively high income taxpayers. I mean, it's what, 85% of us take a standard deduction. So we're we're talking about the top 15%, so to speak, of the distribution of income. It's not a good look. And going back to our episode on the charity scandal and the IRS falling asleep at the wheel, the IRS is approving these organizations as 501c3s. It's such a good point because even if this collective went through that expedited process, Mm -hmm. the IRS doesn't have to act in an expedited fashion. Mm. They could have pulled these aside and And said, said, let's let's wait a beat. Yes. Where this is unclear whether it's incidental or a primary purpose. Let's let's hold off a beat and and figure this out. But no. Yep. I just want to say one more good thing. Oh my God, who are you? Sorry, by my count, I think we worked in like 10 sports puns slash idioms in there. We knocked it out of the park. (gasps) Love it. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses. 